Well, amen, church. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the joy and privilege of getting to sing together and open your word together. We ask and pray that you would in these next few moments, by your spirit, would you engage our hearts and our minds? Would you remove distractions? God, you've got something for us through your word. And we pray and we ask that we would hear from you, Lord. We're desperate to hear from you. So Lord, as you speak, would you open our ears? Would you open our hearts so that we might gladly embrace the word that you have for us and walk in joyful obedience as we hear it, as we heed it, as we live out that joy, that life that you have in store for us. So Lord, lead us in this time now. Be honored and glorified for the glory of your name and for the good of your people we ask in Christ's name, amen. Well, good morning, church. It is great to be able to open God's word together. Uh, my name is Matt Blackwell. I serve as one of our pastors and elders here at the Austin Stone. And we're going to be back in Matthew chapter 18. So if you've been tracking with us over the last uh, few months, we have uh, been working our way through the book of Matthew. And if you were with us last week, we talked about the disciples' question. They come to Jesus and they simply ask a question. They say, what does it mean to be great? What does it look like to be great in the kingdom of God? And so Jesus answers their question. He doesn't slap them on the wrist for asking that question. He says, hey, let me tell you what it means to be great. What it means to be great, it means that you're humble. That means that you care for the least of these. And so Jesus is continuing to answer that same question, but he moves from humility to holiness. And so that's what we're going to look at today because uh, it's easier to, to talk about humility and to talk about morality than it actually is to be holy and humble, right? We, we can talk about it. We can philosophize about it. But when it comes to it, what does it look like for us to, to be humble? What if somebody actually treats us like a humble servant? Then the fists come out. Well, it's easy to talk about morality, but what happens when that little temptation sort of lingers in our brain, sort of strolls through our hearts? Well, then it's hard to, to be holy, to walk in holiness. That's where it gets costly. And I think it's easy for us to, to sort of be, uh, to, to think in, in a worship service when we're opening the word, when we're praying, when we're worshiping, when we're enjoying all of God's blessing and benefit. We're like, man, how could I ever be tempted to sin again? This is so good. This is so wonderful. I'll never sin again. I'll never even be tempted. Because when the sun is shining and, and life is good, we find ourselves not, not thinking that that will happen, but there's something in each and every one of us that's sort of prone to wander. Lord, we feel it, right? Prone to leave the God we love. And so all of a sudden, maybe it's in those dark nights where, where our mind sort of wants to throw off any restraints. It's in those times where the, the shininess of sin seems like the only remedy for the sadness in my soul. Those times where the mirage of temptation, it's, it's promising this, this amazing moment, but you dive into the mirage only to find your mouth filled with sand. And those are the things, those are the moments where we start asking ourselves the question really that we've been asking since the garden. God, are you holding out on me? God, are you for us? Do you love us? Because these temptations keep coming. And they've been coming like at full speed this year. Y'all feel that? 
like a Gatling gun of temptation, just one after the next, wave after wave this past year. I wonder if it sort of left us feeling numb towards the things of God. And because of that, we, we don't know how to deal with temptation because it seems like it's never ending. It's always coming at us and we get tired and weary of even trying to fight the temptation. So we just give in. What does that look like? In difficult times, uh, the playtime Christianity is not a thing anymore. Right, in difficult times, we've got to wrestle with the idea of is, is Christianity sort of a hobby to me? like gardening or, or gaming. Like I'll dabble in it on the weekends when I've got some free time. You know, maybe I'll read the Bible if I have some time or, or attend church if it fits my schedule. Or maybe I'll even join a community as long as they start making me feel good about myself. But, but then things start happening and life gets difficult and, and playtime Christianity doesn't work. Hobby-based Christianity doesn't work because of this church. We've got to remember that holiness is not a hobby. That following Jesus, it's not a play date. That, that Christianity is always going to be costly and it's always going to be worth it. It's always going to cost you something and it's always going to be worth it. Because we're stuck in the middle right now of, of believing the temptation holds the promise of life and joy and success and pleasure. And it looks so shiny. And we're holding that up against the promises of God the true promises that truly have life and joy and all that he wants for us. And we find ourselves not believing those things and embracing these things. And it's in those moments where we can't, we have to recognize that, that, that holiness isn't a hobby, but that following after the word of God means that we're gonna have to cost, it's gonna cost us some things. And so today we're gonna be in a serious passage. It's gonna be difficult to, to look at and read, but it's serious because Jesus is serious about the topic. He's serious about our holiness. And so let's jump in. This is Matthew chapter 18. We're gonna start in verse seven. Here's what it says. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Wow, okay, a lot of cutting off and plucking out and throwing away, like what in the world is going on here? Let me try to answer three questions from our text today. Those questions are number one, when will temptation come? Number two, where does temptation come from? And number three, what should we do about it? When's it gonna come? Where's it coming from? And what do we do? So let me jump into that first question. When will temptations come? And let me give you the short and maybe not so sweet answer to that question. Temptation comes all the time and at any time. Verse seven, Jesus says, it's necessary that temptations come. In other words, temptation, it's inevitable. Like it's going to happen. Because as long as there's sin in the world, there's temptation to follow sin. As long as the lies are being told to us, we're going to be tempted to believe in those lies. We can minimize them with wisdom in the way that we walk, but we can't eradicate them and we can't avoid them. Temptations will come. I like how James talks about this. In James chapter one, he says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
He is lured, he is enticing. See, temptation is luring and it's enticing because it's something that looks promising. It looks like a treasure. It looks like something that is, uh, that is being uh, put out before us that we would want to partake in. And I love this phrase luring, that word luring. I'm a, uh, I fancy myself a novice fly fisherman, which means that I dabble and untangle most of the time. I'm normally caught in a tree or uh, undoing knots, but uh, my good friend, Dave Barrett was teaching me how to fly fish and now I've caught the bug and I enjoy doing it. I was with a buddy down uh, fishing, standing in a river uh, down by New Braunfels. And it occurred to me as I'm casting, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to tempt. I'm trying to lure, I'm trying to entice the fish to come out from wherever, wherever it is and to catch that fish. And that's the word that James is using here. And so I'm thinking in the river, there's all these sort of metaphors for temptation as I'm standing there trying to do that. Because number one is this, is that fishing is a patient sport. Uh, I just called it a sport. I recognize that. You're like, there's no ball or cleats. It can't possibly be a sport. So we'll call it a hobby. Fishing is a patient work. It takes patience. It doesn't have the energy of soccer or basketball or the collisions of football. You have a lot of waiting and watching and casting and watching flow rates and all these kinds of things. And you have to stand in a river and hope and wait. And we've got to remember this, that, that our tempter is evil for sure, but he's patient. He's patient with us. And as patient as Satan is, we have to be just as persistent, if not more. He is, he is patient in tempting. We have to be persistent in trusting. As he tempts, we trust that God's promises are better than what he's putting in front of us. It's patience. But not only that, the tempter's patient, but he's also crafty. He's crafty. I'm learning also that when we go fly fishing, I used to think you just throw maybe a hot dog on a hook and, and you're going to catch a fish. Well, maybe not so much with some of these more temperamental fish. You've got to use some, some specific type of lures. Maybe it's a, a woolly bur burger or a girdle bug or a parachute atoms, these little different types of flies that call out different kinds of fish. And here's the deal is that we, we have to recognize this, that, that we're not unique in the fact that we're tempted but it is unique, the type of temptations that come to you. We're not unique in the fact that we're tempted. First Corinthians chapter 10 says this, it says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common unto man. So all of us are tempted. All of us feel temptations, but the types of temptations that come to you might be specific to you. They're, they might be unique to you. And so it might be something like this, like there's this little fish that comes swimming along and you say, wow, that looks amazing. Or maybe it's this little one here. It's this little green guy. And, 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 and you're, you're swimming along and you say, that doesn't look enticing at all. It's green. It doesn't even look real. It, it doesn't, doesn't look like I want to eat that at all. And all of a sudden the guy next to you goes darting out after it. And, and you start judging his temptation and saying, that doesn't look good at all. But, but over here, you're looking at this one and saying, now that's the one that I want. So, so those temptations might be unique to you. Maybe it's for you. It's anger or pornography or pride or gossip or straight up jacking stuff that's not yours, just taking it for yourself, whatever it might be. You might look at a guy over here and say, how could you possibly struggle with that? And then you saw all of a sudden see yours start floating by. Because temptation isn't unique, but it might be unique to you. And then finally, fly fishing happens the best under certain conditions. 
And so if it's too cold or if it's too hot or if it's too dark or if it's too light, the fish just won't bite. The, the conditions have to be right for, for that temptation to land. The conditions have to be just right. So when you feel, if you, if you think through sort of your rhythms of life, when temptation to sin happens, I wonder if you don't see some sort of pattern. It always sort of happens at particular times of the day or throughout certain times of the week after particular meetings or long stretches of loneliness or boredom or whenever you are disrespected or you're hungry or you're tired, the conditions just sort of seem right. And it's in those moments. Have you ever noticed that that's when temptation sort of comes? It, it comes on the rhythms of life that we're most tempted at certain times, whether we're stressed or tired or worried or out of control or lonely or bored, that's when temptation shows up. Well, this year, how often, right? How often have you been? stressed or tired or worried or out of control or lonely or bored? Weekly, daily, hourly? How often are we tempted? It's, it's when those conditions are right and you're wondering why in the world do I feel so much temptation right now? It might be that the conditions of your life are leading you to be in this place where temptations are coming. And so we know that it's coming, but the second question we wanna wrestle with is, okay, where does it come from? Verse seven. Jesus says, woe to the one by whom temptation comes. So where is temptation coming from? So we know that temptation comes from Satan for sure, right? Both Matthew and Paul call Satan the tempter, but James has this unique spin on it. James says it like this, James 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Now pause real quick. You might feel like when you're being tempted that God is tempting you. God isn't tempting you. He might be testing you, but he's not tempting you because the aim of temptation is towards sin and faithlessness. The aim of testing is towards more faith and joy in who God is. So God might be testing, but he's not tempting. And so we have to understand those things. And so it says God is not tempting us because God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. So where's temptation coming from? Sometimes it's coming even just from my own heart. It's coming from inside myself because we all have desires, right? We all have appetites and that's good. And it's right that God has given us these, these appetites and these desires so that when they are met, we can thank God for the provision for that desire. That's why we say grace before we eat a meal because we're thanking God for his provision. So we have desires for food, which is good and right because we can go find nourishment. We have thirst, which is good and right so we can be hydrated and healthy. We have desire to sleep so that we can rest and trust God with, with life. We have a sex drive, which is good so that we can have intimacy inside of marriage and so that we can actually be a part of creating life. What a joy, what a blessing that is. And so God has given us these desires, but what happens is this, is that temptation comes along and it disorders these desires. It, it flips them over. And these desires start getting unchecked. And what happens when our desires go unchecked is they start getting really loud. They start getting really bossy. They start making demands and they start making promises that they'll never fulfill. And these good, right appetites turn into these disordered desires. And so our appetite for sex turns into an obsession. 
right? Our appetite for rest turns into laziness. Our appetite for food or drink turns into eating too much or drinking too much. Paul says it like this in Philippians chapter three, verse 19 says, for many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly. Where does temptation come from? Sometimes it just comes up from inside myself. And so we find ourselves beginning to believe those desires, whether it's the raging libido or the rumbling stomach or the wounded ego. And we start thinking that if I deny the desire, I deny who I am. And what we do is now we are starting to deify our desires. They're making demands of us and they're making promises to us. The demands and the promises that the desires are making will never come to fruition. They're lying to us. And so we deify our desires, but church, we've got to recognize this, that our desires are not our gods. They do not define us. As a matter of fact, you remember when Jesus was tempted? Remember he hadn't eaten for 40 days. He was hungry, like on the point of starvation hungry. We say, man, I'm so starving. We hadn't eaten in 40 minutes and what's in the fridge. He's hadn't eaten for 40 days. He's out in the desert and Satan comes and he tempts Jesus and he tempts him in a real way. Matthew 4, 4 says, uh, his, his response to that temptation says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, Jesus doesn't define himself by his desires. Even though he has desires, he defines himself by every word that comes from God. All right, that he believes that God's word is better, that God's promises are truer, that God's nature and character is, is purer than the desires that we are having. And so where do they come from? They come from up in here and our, our minds start speaking to us. And we start asking the question, God, are you really holding out on me? Is the temptation actually truer? See, some of us are questioning God in this. We're questioning God, did you really save me? Some of us are questioning our own identity. God, did you really make me in your image? Some of us are questioning God's love. God, do you really love a wretch like me? Some of us are questioning uh, God's morality. God, are things actually right and wrong? Some of us are questioning God's timing. God, did you just forget us? Have you forgotten us completely? So we recognize this, that temptations come inevitably. They come persistently. And from where they're coming, often they're coming from even inside of us. And so the question is, okay, well, what do we do? If they're coming all the time and they're coming from inside of here, what in the world do we do? And Jesus answers that with this strong language. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. And so Jesus is using this strong figurative language here, right? He's using this strong language to show the seriousness and the, the ferocity by which we have to battle with our temptations. To root out sin in our lives takes a serious effort. He's saying, hey, get rid of it from your life. If Twitter's causing you to be in a rage constantly, then delete it, throw it away. If Instagram's causing you to lust, then, then pluck it out. If there's a relationship in your life that's continually leading you to sin, then, then get rid of it, cut it off. That's what Jesus is saying, that we, we, we have to be serious about 
the temptations that are coming into our lives. Because here's how it works. Temptation often starts really small. It, it starts like this little thought. Maybe it's a curious click. Uh, maybe it's a little frustration. Maybe it's you got noticed by someone and they're kind to you and they're not your spouse, you're married, but this person just makes you feel good inside until so you like to be around them. And, and maybe this little crush starts to happen. And so temptation starts small, but if it's unchecked, it grows. It grows and the scripture says it grows and it gives birth to death. And so the little click leads to an addiction. The little crush leads to an affair. The little frustration leads to bitterness and cynicism and anger. And, and here's how Satan captures us on both sides. Over here, he says, don't confess this sin, it's too silly. Like it's silly if you just go to your, uh, your, your accountability group, you go to your small group and you say, hey man, I gotta, I gotta confess this sin that someone was nice to me at work and it made me feel good. They're like, really, that's your sin? That's what you have to, to confess? And you're like, yeah, there's something here. And Satan says, don't, don't confess the silly stuff. But over here, when it's gotten out of control, Satan gets us over here and he says, man, now it's scary. Now, if you confess this, you start losing stuff. You start losing jobs. You start losing relationships. It's too scary to confess over here. So he captures us on both sides and saying, you can't confess silly and you can't confess scary. And so what happens is we just find ourselves with unchecked desires that are disordered in our lives that have now become deified in us. And these temptations to sin are now ruling the way that we live. But the challenge is, is that we, we should oftentimes be willing to confess silly before it gets to scary. I would much rather confess this than this. And think about like this, think about you're sitting on the couch watching Netflix, you got Cobra Kai, right? You're watching a show and you've got 20 throw pillows on the couch and one of them just spontaneously combusts, it just bursts into flames. Most of us in our right mind would go, Okay, I probably need to go take care of that. None of us would just sit there and go, you know what? I got 19 other pillows. What's the big deal? It's just a small fire. It'll probably burn itself out. No, we would get up immediately. We would extinguish those flames because we know that as long as there's fuel, one pillow would burn 19 other pillows, which would burn the couch, would eventually burn the house, which would destroy all that we own. And when it comes to sin, we say, well, it's just a little fire. I got it under control. Church, you don't have it under control. If you think you have all of these sins under control, you are sadly mistaken. Jesus says, you gotta pay attention. It's time to open your eyes. It's time to pay attention because he's using strong language to say, we don't have it under control. There's a fire in your soul and it's called sin and it's time to deal with it. And so he comes with this strong language. Now he's not being literal, but he is being radical. He's not saying literally cut off your hand or literally pluck out your eye, because let's be honest, we'd have nothing left. And if it was that simple, even though that's, that's difficult, if it was that simple for me to be able to cut off my own sin would mean I don't need a savior. But the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus is not being literal, he's being radical. He's saying, look, it's not an issue of your hands, it's an issue of your heart that I wanna change your heart from the inside out. And that's why we need a savior who comes and is willing to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so he sets us free from the inside out. All right, well, what radical things might we do then? What does it look like to radically deal with sin in our lives? 
There's a lot of things. Let me just give you two. Two things that we can radically do to deal with temptation. Number one, believe. Number two, rejoice. The first one is this. To deal with temptation is to radically believe the Bible. Now, some of you are going, okay, so believe the Bible. That's the radical thing to do. It might just be, if you don't think believing the Bible is all that radical, it might just be that you haven't read your Bible in a while because there are words in here. There's power in here. There's some stuff that Jesus says that draws us out in here. And so believing the Bible. Remember, every time that Jesus was tempted by Satan in the desert, remember Satan would come. He says, if you do this, if you do this, if you do this, every time Jesus answered him, it is written, it is written, it is written. Jesus is always going back to the Bible. Jesus is not defined by his desires. He's defined by God's word for him. He wanted those things. They were luring, they were enticing, but he says, God, your promises, your word is better than those things. He says, man will live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so for every experience of temptation, we have to have an experience of the Bible, right? In order to balance those things out, if, if, if temptation's coming inevitably and often, then we need to be in the scripture perpetually and often. We need to be opening God's word and spending time here and putting it in our hearts and believing the promises of God. And so we go to the Bible, not just to know the Bible, but, but to know the author so that we might believe his promises, so that we might know that he is good and that he is for us, and that he's not holding out on us. I found this quote from an author named Tim Chester. I thought it was really good. Let me share it with you. He says, we do not read the Bible simply to fill our minds, but to change our hearts. We do not read the Bible simply to be informed, but to be conformed to the image of Jesus. We read the Bible to stir our affections, our fear, our hope, our love, our desire, our confidence. We read it until our heart cries out, the Lord is good. I love that line. We read it until we cry out, the Lord is good so that we believe his truth over the truth that our temptation is calling us to believe in. And so church, the simple question, like how are you doing with your time in the word? Are we, are we radically going to the Bible? Remember in January, we all said, hey, this is the year I'm gonna read through the Bible. I'm gonna have a Bible reading plan. Well, now we're in March, are we doing all right? Are we experiencing God through his word? Let's continue to believe the Bible. Secondly, What's the second radical thing that we can do is this, is that we rejoice in the cross because we're gonna struggle with temptation. We're gonna fall into sin. That's gonna happen, but we have a hope. And the hope is this, that we can rejoice that the knockout blow was given to our sin and to Satan and to death uh, on the cross, that Jesus died and rose again. And because of that, we have life. And so Satan can accuse us, he can harass us, he can come after us, he can tempt us, but he cannot destroy us. So we rejoice in the cross. I love how Jesus says it in John chapter 10. He says, the thief, the tempter, Satan, comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
I love what Jesus does right here. He uses this word for life. He says, I've come that they may have life. Now there's two words in the Greek language for life. There's bios, which we get our word biology, which means physical life. And there's zoe, which means fulfillment or joy or blessing in life. He says, look, the tempters come to steal. He's tempting you, but he's come to kill and to destroy. I've come so that you would have zoe, you would have fulfillment, you would have life, you would have blessing. And in Matthew 18, two times Jesus uses that word zoe. He said, it's better for you to enter life. It's better for you to have zoe, to have fulfillment. And so all this talking of cutting and plucking and denying and dying, Jesus is talking about living. He's talking about Zoe. He's talking about your fulfillment. He wants your joy. He just knows it's not coming from that temptation. The temptation is promising, but it's lying. Church, God is not holding out on you. God is not lying to you. Your disordered desires are lying to you because God has come to bring life, to bring fulfillment, to bring joy. And how does he secure life for you? By giving his own. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. See, Jesus was willing to go all in. He didn't just lose a hand. He just didn't lose an eye. He lost it all so that you could have life. So that we could be experienced in that resurrection life. So that our sins wouldn't count against us, but we'd be put in in his account and his righteousness would be given to us so that we might walk in newness of life, that we might have fulfillment and joy and blessing in church. I'm telling you the temptations that you're feeling, I know they're coming inevitably. I know they're coming uh, with reckless abandon, but they're not telling you the truth. Here's the truth, that God loves you. He's not holding out on you. He wants fulfillment and joy for you and he secured it through the cross. So let's rejoice in that together. Let's rejoice with the words of the Apostle Paul, which he says this in 1 Corinthians 15. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus. So church, we're done with the sermon. We're gonna respond in worship. But I wanna give you a moment. Just, I know you're gonna run off. You got other things to do today, but before we run off, I wanna just give you a moment to sort of just settle before the Lord. Maybe there's some, some, some sins that you feel like, man, I don't know, is this, is this too small to confess? Just bring it to God, bring it to the Lord. Say, God, I, I got this feeling, I got this thing. I, I don't know what to do with it. Or maybe there's some stuff over here that that you're a little nervous about, that it feels too weighty, that it's sort of scary to confess. Let me just remind you, God knows. He's not shocked. He's not surprised. He stands in the ready with his grace. So take a moment now, go before the Lord, bring those things to him and confess. Psalm 51 says it like this when King David is confessing, he says this, be gracious to me, O God, 
according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion, completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. Maybe that's the prayer you pray today. God, completely, because of your love, completely wash me clean. Pray that now. As we close today, I want to read this prayer over you. This is a prayer from the Book of Common Worship. We came across this this week and I thought, man, what a great opportunity for us to, to pray this prayer. And so as we close this sermon, as we, as we turn to respond to God, would you pray this with me? Gracious God, we confess that we have longed too much for the comforts of this world. We have loved the gifts more than the giver. In your mercy, help us to see all the things that we pine for are shadows, but you are substance. They are quicksands, but you are the mountain. They are shifting, but you are the anchor. So we plead for your forgiveness on the merits of Jesus Christ. Accept his worthiness for our unworthiness, his sinlessness for our transgressions, his fullness for our emptiness, his glory for our shame, his righteousness for our dead works, his death for our life. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name, amen.